America is back. Diplomacy is back. Well, you know, one minute. One minute. Okay. Ведущих стран Европы. Wir brauchen die NATO. We are present everywhere, from Lithuania to the Sahel, to Afghanistan, to Iraq, to Lebanon. War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. Welcome back to War and Peace, a podcast of the International Crisis Group. I'm your host, Orna Ulliker, speaking to you from Brussels for a special episode prepared uh, in collaboration with the Open Society European Policy Institute. Joining me uh, instead of my usual co-host, Hugh Pope, is um, my colleague Mariano Dalba. He is Crisis Group's senior advocacy advisor working on um, Latin American issues. And that's because today we are talking about uh, Venezuela, though I think we will also be talking about Europe and Russia's role in Venezuela. So we're not we're not getting too far afield. So first of all, uh, welcome, Mariano. Thank you so much, Olga. Uh, excited to be co-hosting with you today, joining from Madrid. Thanks. And our guest today is Roberto Patino. Uh, Roberto is um, a Venezuelan political activist. He has been working in community-based food aid and distribution and also anti-violence programs throughout this long-standing political crisis. He has also taken part in some of the negotiations between the opposition and the government from the opposition side as events have unfolded. So, Roberto, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Olga, for the opportunity. And hello, Mariano. Good to see you again. So Crisis Group has actually done a lot of work in Venezuela, and um, I was actually hoping that we could start with Mariano giving a quick overview of what the War and Peace listener may not know and ought to know before we start talking to Roberto about his own experience. Sure. So so basically the short version of a very tragic and, and sad story is that Venezuela is in the midst of, of a huge political crisis that has had a very dire impact for the vast majority of its population, uh, who are basically not only suffering from, from hunger, but also to a lack of any public service. And basically right now they, they are uh, in a situation where they are trying to do anything they can uh, day by day uh, to simply survive. And this is a consequence, first, of, of the mismanagement of the Maduro government. Many policies which he inherited from, from his predecessor, the much more known Hugo Chavez. And at the same time, this economic crisis that had a huge impact uh, on the people came along with a very important uh, democratic backsliding. And basically, in the end, it ended on the severe lack of any democratic guarantees. So that obviously led not only to multiple protests throughout recent years, starting in 2014, in which, you know, a considerable amount of the Venezuelan population went to the streets and tried to fight for political change. But the, but the Maduro government was able to, to impose itself basically through, through the support of the military and through repression. And basically, you know, by co-opting uh, or taking control of all Venezuelan institutions. And then obviously, you know, the, the part of the society, you know, the Venezuelan opposition and the Venezuelan civil society who, who are obviously not in agreement with what the country has been dealing with. They sought assistance from the international community, who obviously, especially in, in the case of the United States and during the Trump administration, came out with a pretty forceful response 
of first non-recognition of the Maduro government uh, in the international sphere, but then more importantly, a policy of, of sanctions, which in my view at least have also had uh, an important impact on the well-being of a considerable amount of, of the Venezuelan population. So right now we are in a situation in which there is an important uh, amount of countries in the Western Hemisphere and in the Americas, but also in Europe, who do not recognize Maduro uh, and who think that um, Maduro is a dictator, but Maduro remains in control. And at the same time, within the opposition, there is still not clarity on how to respond, on how to achieve democracy. And what we have seen recently is, you know, first, a desire within the opposition to review its strategy and try to move closer to, to change through a much more progressive uh, strategy. And second, not only canalizing the international pressure with the aim of producing political change, but also with the aim that certain steps are taking that have impact in the well-being of the people. Because the, the reasoning is, at least in, in some, some circles, has been changing that if certain steps are taken that allow the people of Venezuela uh, to be in a better position in terms of you know, access to food and, and overall well-being, then they will be in a better position to, to pressure for the ultimate goal, which is a transition to democracy in Venezuela. So that's, uh, I think, a really a great uh, nutshell overview. I want to now ask Roberto, what has your role been? How have these events affected you and how have you affected these events? Sure. Oh, uh, thank you. So um, I started my political and social activism in 2007 with the student movement. Um, we went to the streets back then and uh, we also tried uh, to support uh, political change through elections. So I was very active in the presidential election in 2012 and 2013. Uh, the 2013 elections was um, uh, disputed by us as, as an election that we thought uh, had a lot of uh, questionable uh, practices and, and the results were basically, um, the country was split in half back then. And something that really shocked me in, in that experience was that I, I visited more than 200 towns, right? And I was 23 years old. And um, I saw the lack of trust in politics in general, in the people. And I think this is a general phenomena all over the world. Uh, we would knock on doors, ask people to participate, and a lot of them would be very skeptical of, of the possibility of politics affecting their their lives. So I decided with a group of people to start an NGO that could allow us uh, to work with people regardless of, of their political positions. Yeah, Venezuela has been the poster child of polarization all over the world, I think. We've been for 20 years a society that has been fighting uh, itself. Um, and we have learned the possibility of doing and, and achieving results with people from different political positions by just proposing concrete ways of impacting their lives. And what I mean by this is, uh, for example, uh, violence reduction programs where we target hotspots in community and uh, people who are at risk. And we work with them through sports, through culture to um, avoid them from doing bad things. And in the context of that, in 2016, I was doing a, a, an activity in a community and a little girl approached me 
and asked me f- uh, for food. She told me she was starving. And this was really shocking for me. And, and I think there's an important point there. The humanitarian crisis in Venezuela started before sanctions. I saw that with my own eyes in communities in Caracas that are a couple miles away from, from the presidential palace. So we started a program of soup kitchens on, on which we give the communities the ingredients and training. They do all the work voluntarily, and it has grown a lot. Uh, right now we have a presence in, in 16 states of the country, and we're feeding every day 18,000 kids. That's on the social entrepreneurship and impact front. But I know that the that change in Venezuela will require a negotiation, and that's why I also got involved in these processes of first the Dominican Republic in 2017, and then the Barbados, uh, Norway-led negotiations in 2019. And my role was to be the strategy coordinator of the opposition representation in those negotiations. One question that I have is, how have you been able uh, over all these years to balance you know, your, your role as, as the leader of an NGO, but at the same time, uh, in some cases, wear the hat of, of you know, a political leader, a political activist. It is increasingly uh, you know, a, a cause of, of tension within Venezuela because you know, uh, at least certain civil society groups uh, try to um, state very clearly that they don't want to get into politics, but at the same time, they want to play a role in fostering the solution and obviously that, that negotiated solution that you, you were alluding to. How has been your experience in that regard? And how have you managed that, that natural tension between you know, those, those two camps? Sure. Uh, so the, the most important thing is that I'm very upfront with people at the community level on which are my positions. Uh, but I also have a, as an important element of our team and our projects is basically bring people together from different political factions. So it's not about anti-politics, right? It's not about, we're not political. No, we have a political position. I, I have a, as a person a political position, but I can speak to you and I can work with you even if you have another one, even if you're a Chavista, right? And at the community level, you see a lot of progress when you do this approach. I think the elites tend to be much more reluctant to work together because in, in a way, they also have something to gain from that polarization. But the people at the community level know that if we have a community kitchen and we're not saying, you know, you need to be opposition or Chavista to be part of the community kitchen, uh, the soup kitchen, you only need to work, you need to contribute by working. And we're going to target those who are most in need, regardless of their position, their religion, or any other criteria. I think people have uh, opened their arms for us to work with them. Can you transition that into political compromise? Is there a way to go from what you're doing at the community level, building these bridges, being able to cooperate with people who you fundamentally disagree with, and translate that into national politics? Well, that has been my approach and what I've tried to contribute to these negotiation processes, which is basically try to put our side in the future. I think that if we are too focused on the past, we're going to always be fighting each other because we're going to have different uh, interpretations of what really happened. It's going to be a blame game. You know, it's going to be always about um, who's going to be down, who's going to be up because of what happened in the past. And I think that for Venezuela to overcome the crisis that we're experiencing, we need to um, come to terms with the fact 
that the only solution to the crisis is that we understand that all Venezuelans need to be part of the solution. There's not going to be a clean cut. It's not going to be like, you know, now the opposition wins and all Chavistas disappear from Venezuela. But it's not going to be the other way either. Chavistas have been trying to suppress the opposition for 20 years. We're still here and, and we're going to stay here. This is our country. So um, I think that in that respect, what I've seen at the community level has been very informative in the work that I've tried to do also in the political sphere. So what does that look like? Is that power sharing? What does the transition look like, if that's the approach? Yeah, from my perspective, what's most necessary in Venezuela is discussing guarantees for, for both sides, right? As of now, Chavistas are in power. And I can say it from my own personal experience. In December, I was subject of, of repression. There was an arrest warrant against me. I went into hiding for a month. Uh, the political police came into the home of my mother with long guns, heavy weaponry, looking for me because of the social work that I do. So there's no guarantees for anyone here. They can come for you anytime. But I, at the same time, I know that Chavistas are very afraid themselves because they believe that if they lose power, we are going to come after them and we're going to put them in jail. And, you know, from the international perspective, the message that at least the Trump administration had for them was you can choose what island of the Caribbean you want to go to, right? But they, I, I believe that if, if they have a minimal knowledge of what has happened in the past, you know, the generals from Argentina, Pinochet, all the dictators that went out of their countries, they ended up in jail, right? Because they have committed very bad stuff. So I think the only solution in Venezuela is what has happened, like in Colombia, you know? Guerrilla members stayed in Colombia, are doing politics in Colombia, right? And that's the only way that I think we're going to have uh, the possibility of change in the country. War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. You're listening to War and Peace, a podcast of the International Crisis Group, and my colleague Mariana Delba and I are talking to Venezuelan political activist Roberto Patino. So let's uh, bring the conversation to to more recent developments because we would like to to hear your views. <clears throat> Obviously, you work very closely in the field of working with communities for them to have s some access to food. You work with a lot of children uh, in this community. And recently, the, the Maduro government signed uh, an agreement with the World Food Pro Program to establish their presence in Venezuela and start working with certain communities progressively in obviously their, their area of expertise, which is food security. What was your reaction to the agreement? And what are the prospects that you see in the near future for these types of agreement between international organizations and the Maduro government. So uh, first, I celebrate a lot that the World Food Program uh, is going to start operations in Venezuela. I think they have just opened their office. And I think that we all need to support the operations that they will deploy. So part of the drama in Venezuela is that we have also people who are in the political extremes, right? So on one hand, you have the extremists on the Chavista side who believe that any support from outside, it's a Trojan horse for the invasion, right? Uh, so they, they uh, were very reluctant in accepting 
that WFP could come into the country. But on the other side, in the opposition, you also have extremists that believe that this kind of program can help the regime sustain itself because it's going to prevent this, the so-called social explosion that might overthrow the regime, which is very cynic as well. So I think that for those of us who care about this country, who care about the people, this is great news. This is great news and it's going to, and I really hope that they can scale up their operations. And um, I also believe that uh, they need to be very careful in the way they do it because they don't want to be used also by the regime in terms of their social control mechanisms, you know, the food that's going to come in through WFP. But something that's really relevant is that it's my understanding that WFP has funding from the U.S. and from Europe. So you're going to have a program on the ground feeding children who's funded by the U.S., by Europe, in Venezuela. So from my perspective, it's a big breakthrough. And uh, I'm very happy that it happened. And looking forward, the difficult part is going to come now, which is the, the implementation of that. Another specific question that I had is you're in very close touch with many people in, in large and poor communities in In Venezuela, there's this, you know, this perspective or this impression, at least from part of the international community. And you were alluding to this earlier, uh, that the Venezuelan people are, are simply kind of fed up with, with the political situation, with a confrontation between the government and the opposition. Obviously, they are in a situation in which they have, you know, they, they, their basic priority is to, to survive each day. But You know, in, in terms that also implies that there is a huge disillusionment with all the political sphere because neither side, um, to an extent, has been able to help them in all the challenges that they face every single day. Do you get that impression from the people that you are in touch with and how that people um, foresees or, or can actually, you know, imagine a solution not only to, to the political crisis, but to their most important problems? Yeah, so um, that's completely right. Uh, I'll give you a concrete example. Uh, last year, when the pandemic started, I, I started thinking, what could we do to support health workers? Health workers in Venezuela earn less than $2 per month. So they basically pay more in transportation to go to their posts than what they earn. And they are still going and risking their lives because of the pandemic and, and giving support to the most vulnerable members of society. So we started a program of bringing hot meals to hospitals. And this has been something that I, I've been very passionate about and I've been talking to them and I hear from them precisely what you're saying, Mariano. There's a, a disconnection of the political sphere with their survival needs, basically. People are surviving in Venezuela and that's why we have such a massive migration problem, right? Uh, Venezuela is, 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 a, is a, en route of becoming the largest migration crisis surpassing the Syrian one this year. And of course, this is a, a massive problem for Latin America as a whole. Uh, it's been really destabilizing. And, you know, also in Europe, I, I was seeing some figures that Venezuelans are on the top of refugees that are coming to Europe through Spain as well, right? So I think that the international community, the opposition, but also the regime, we all need to understand that there's only one way out of this. And that way is a negotiation. And if we don't go down that path, uh, we're going to keep seeing an increasingly disconnected population from the political sphere. And at the same time, 
uh, more suffering and more tragedies at the community and, and the vulnerable communities. So, Roberto, you talked about the importance of the fact that World Food Program aid is truly global. It's coming from the European Union. It's coming from the United States. What else can or should European countries uh, specifically, particularly, be doing going forward? What kind of help is needed to help ensure a sustainable way forward rather than one that perhaps exacerbates rather than uh, solves problems? So I think Europe should take more political risks with respect to Venezuela. Uh, last year, Borrell sent a delegation trying to see if there was a possibility of of sending a electoral uh, monitoring mission for the parliamentary elections. He was heavily criticized by members of the European Parliament. And then the EU ambassador was kicked out of the country this year because of sanctions, right? But I think that's, in a way, irrelevant with respect to the capacity of impact that Europe has because of, of its diplomatic tools, because of the leadership it can exert because of the cultural, historical ties that it has with Venezuela. And we, we're hearing from the Biden administration that they want to play a multilateral uh, game with respect to Venezuela. And I think Europe has uh, the possibility of, of leading that. It's not only Spain, France, Germany. They, they have been very active through their uh, ambassadors here. And, and I think there's great opportunity for Europeans to seize the moment in Venezuela and show that even though it's a crisis that no one thinks can be solved, I think there is an opportunity for it. Well, one of the things that happened very recently, actually this week, and it would be very interesting to get your thoughts on, is, you know, this possibility of negotiation. And certain groups within the opposition were able to, to uh, advance, you know, a, a back-channel negotiation with the Maduro government. And in the end, they, they were successful in, in securing a more balanced National Electoral Council. And this is relevant because uh, under the Venezuelan constitution, there should be, at least this year, regional and, and local elections. However, what we have seen after that, that National Electoral Council was appointed last Tuesday, is basically, and, and this is a, an issue of worry for me, is basically a, a further divisions, not only within the Venezuelan opposition, because there is one side of the Venezuelan opposition that is not in agreement with what happened. And that is the side that, you know, has had the international recognition since 2019. And at the same time that those divisions, those internal divisions in the opposition uh, are being replicated in the international community. Roberto was alluding, for example, to the high representative for, for, for the European Council, Mr. Joseph Borrell, uh, every step that he takes in relation to Venezuela, he has to face a huge backlash from the European Parliament. Uh, right now, there are voices within the Democratic Party uh, that are more open to this approach of progressive negotiations. And obviously, you know, the figures from the Republican Party in the U.S. Congress are totally against. So, so Roberto, my specific question to you is, how do you think that, you know, the Venezuelan opposition, who, who you are a part of, it's going to deal with this issue in, in the short term. 
and what possible solutions do you foresee for this, in a sense, a strategic debate within the opposition? Sure. So I think, uh, Mariano, that what you're saying is right. Uh, unity of the opposition is a big concern of a lot of people, myself including. I think unity is going to be one of the ingredients that's going to allow a transition to come to Venezuela. It's a necessary condition, but insufficient. I think there's more than just unity, um, but it's necessary. I think that typically what happens in other countries, and maybe Olga and, and Hugh had discussed a lot of cases in this podcast before, is that these conflicts are very messy. It's a very disorganized and it's very difficult to make breakthroughs. So sometimes I'm concerned that there are factions in the opposition, but also in the international community that would expect clean-cut solutions, right? Things that would just happen overnight. And, you know, it's, I, I don't think it's realistic. I think that the only possibility is a negotiation, and that's going to imply a, a progressive incremental approach. So that being said, when you think about the two key elements that the negotiation uh, comes down to is basically the regime is very interested in sanctions and guarantees for the future. And the opposition is very interested in having the possibility of competing in presidential elections with conditions and having guarantees for the future as well. None of that is, is going to be affected, from my perspective, by a regional election, right? So, um, you know, the, I don't think the U.S. will lift sanctions because the opposition participates or not in a regional election. What the U.S. and the international community cares about is democratization of the country, including, of course, the presidential palace. And on the Chavista side, I think um, they, they will only be willing to put that on the table if they think there's a very attractive offer on the other side, which is something that I think we all who want change in Venezuela need to think more about. It's been so far a lot about the stick, you know, pressure, 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 which I think it's necessary, of course, but also we need to think about the carrots, right? The positive incentives for them to, to make a breakthrough. So we've talked a lot about the international community wanting certain things, but I keep thinking about a part of the international community that may want something else, which is to say Russia, which has been much more supportive of the Maduro regime, although a little quieter about it, at least lately. Does it have a role to play in this transition as you see it? Definitely it has. What I see the Russians, the Russians are positioned in Venezuela in two very strategic spheres. One is the military. They became the providers of all the equipment to the Venezuelan military. And that's going to be a long-term relationship. It's not going to change overnight as well. And I think they have a lot of interest in, in having the, that client, right? Venezuela as a client for their uh, military-industrial complex. And uh, the other sphere is oil, oil production, right? So uh, Rosneft and, and other companies, Russian companies, have made investments. My perspective with respect to Russia is that they will always support the Maduro regime in a way to put a finger on the eye of the U.S., but they will not go the extra mile for the Maduro regime. And we've seen that also with, for example, vaccines. I think the Maduro regime has been very disappointed that the Russians, the Chinese, have not supported them in a significant way when they needed them the most, right? So I think the Maduro regime can count on them for political support at the UN, uh, public statements and so on, but I don't think they're going to be uh, saving the regime. 
So what was um, what was Maduro hoping for in terms of vaccines and what did he get from the Russians? Just to kind of clarify that point. Sure. So you've seen uh, the Russians are uh, the Sputnik vaccine is being sold uh, all over the world. And particularly, it's interesting to see in the region that uh, countries that have not been typically aligned with the Russians have been, you know, good clients of them, like the, the Chileans um, or, or, or in Central America. It's a fine vaccine. Yeah, sure. Uh, but, you know, the, the Maduro regime announced that they were going to receive millions of vaccines by the Russians. It's not been the case. So far, they received around 500,000 vaccines, which is not much. And of course, you know, as the regime operates here, they were very upfront and blunt in showing the Venezuelan population that they, as a political elite, got vaccinated first. And uh, the people of Venezuela are still waiting for a vaccine to come. I mean, I think that's uh, very much it kind of underlines the difficulties of uh, Venezuela's waiting for so much to come. Vaccines, <laughs> food, transition, change. <laughs> change. Um, that's uh, it's, it's certainly something that it's going to be really, really important to keep watching. So thank you so much, Roberto, for joining us and giving the War and Peace audience, at least, uh, an introduction and your views uh, to these issues. Thank you so much, Olga and Mariano, for the opportunity. Indeed. Thank you, Roberto and Olga. It's been a pleasure to co-host with you. We hope you all enjoy this as much as we have. For more timely insights, you can follow Roberto and his work on Twitter, handle Roberto Patino, uh, and then alimentalasolaridad.org. And you can also read the recent report uh, to which he contributed called, uh, it's a book actually called Comunidad Venezuela. And for crisis groups analysis on Venezuela, you should check out our website, uh, www.crisisgroup.org. You should follow Crisis Group on Twitter. It's at Crisis Group. And you should also follow Mariano. He is at Mariano, D-E-A-L-B-A, Mariano de Alba. And you can also follow me on Twitter if you're not doing that already. I'm at Olya Olakur. And on Facebook and Instagram, Crisis Group is at Crisis Group. Uh, you should also not only follow us on Twitter, but go ahead and tweet at us. Uh, tell us what you like or don't like in the podcast. We're going to be paying attention. We're going to listen. You know, if you ask a question, maybe we'll answer it in the coming podcast. Uh, wouldn't that be cool? And if you're listening through iTunes, uh, please do leave a rating and a review. That's how they track their rankings, I think. So that's why we ask. War and Peace is a partner in a network of podcasts about Europe. Check Europod for some of the others. Also, big thanks to Open Society European Policy Institute for their partnership, setting up this special episode. And as always, to our producer, Pool Media, and our own coordinators, Rebecca Serginhun Acefa and Patricia Alonso. Biggest thanks, as always, to you, our listeners. We're looking forward to chatting with you some more in just a couple of weeks. For now, though, goodbye. War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group.